From Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. My uncle was a sergeant in the Chicago Police Department. He was with a patrol officer, Anthony Rosado, and on the evening of July 17, 1970, they were assassinated. For decades, Jean had the support of governors of both parties to keep her uncle's killer behind bars until J.B. Pritzker. We did not get any letters whatsoever from Governor Pritzker opposing parole. My message to the governor would be shame on you. A viral snowstorm of misinformation online, fake newspapers spreading lies to Illinois voters, Darren Bailey and his allies incessantly spreading myths and obvious falsehoods. And now, this outrageous TV ad that should insult us all. The truth is the governor can't parole anyone. The ad is 100% false. An entire campaign trying to scare you. Darren Bailey, all lies, no solutions. Well, election day is nearly upon us, and that means we will soon get a break from the campaign ads, but we do have a final chance to talk about the campaigns, and we will do that and more here on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, and our panel includes Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. He's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. Also with us, we have Hannah Meisel, NPR Illinois Statehouse Editor, and our guest today is Jeremy Gorner. He covers government and politics for the Chicago Tribune. Jeremy, it's always good to have you back with us. Glad to be here, Sean. So we heard those ads at the start of the show. So let's just jump in right there. Hannah, uh, fill us in a little bit more on what we've heard and, and the response to those. Well, uh, that first ad that we heard up top is from the people who play by the rules pack, uh, the pack that is. Uh, headed by conservative radio host, uh, conservative provocateur, I guess you could say, Dan Croft, one-time uh, candidate for governor. Um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, propped up by Dick Uline's uh, money, uh, Proft has been able to make, I guess you could say, sort of a political comeback in Illinois, even though he is, I guess, now a hashtag Florida man, uh, still uh, able to influence politics here. I'm sure he's very proud um, of that. Uh, you know, this is the, the we've been talking about him for months now. Of course, he's the same guy, uh, along with uh, Brian Timponi. You know, we group in this category of, you know, folks who kind of actively circulate, uh, you know, what you might call fake news um, and have been for a while. Uh, you know, we've talked about earlier this fall, um, these fake newspapers um, that, uh, you know, Tim, this like so-called pink slime news uh, that Timponi and uh, has been, Brian Timponi, a, also a, you know, conservative provocateur, one-time Statehouse reporter, obviously uh, gotten uh, very far from his roots, uh, also one-time uh, founder of Journatic, this kind of failed company that uh, sought to incorporate AI and, um, you know, freelancers from far-flung parts of the world to cover Illinois news. There is a lot of misinformation flying. I don't, you know, I've talked about many times on the show, I don't think that our current um, incentive system for journalism is set up to counter bad faith 
disinformation, misinformation. Dan Proft is a name, of course, that we've been hearing a lot about, as Hannah mentioned. In fact, he ran for governor a few years back. I've heard more about him this year than when he was actually on the ballot. He doesn't even live in Illinois. And Jeremy, your latest story, you take uh, you guys take a look in the Tribune at that pack a little bit closer. Uh, fill us in on your story, what, what that's all about. Well, you were saying, um, Sean, that you've heard a little bit more about Prof now in this election than in recent years. Perhaps a big reason for that could be that Richard Uline, the um, uh, you know, the wealthy business owner in the northern suburbs of Chicago, he's a conservative mega donor, has um, given um, Prof's PAC, the people who play by the rules PAC, $42 million for this election to oppose uh, Governor Pritzker's re-election. Um, but what's at issue um, as recently as, you know, this story that we did that Rick uh, Pearson and I did today is that um, you had an internal dispute between Darren Bailey, the Darren Bailey's campaign and a recently departed political worker uh, named Brett Corrigan. He's 18 years old, very charismatic uh, supporter of Bailey's. Uh, you know, basically when when Bailey railed against Pritzker you know, in the General Assembly for the pandemic, uh, for Pritzker's pandemic mitigations, that's something that Corrigan was very supportive um, as a as a high school student. Um, so obviously, um, one thing led to another. He started working for Bailey's campaign in 2021. Since then, he has left. He um, recently left the campaign, um, um, I want to say, in September sometime. Uh, and you know what we are told by um, Corrigan's lawyer is that um, they had been involved in uh, settlement negotiations with the Bailey campaign over some sort of internal human resources dispute that Corrigan had um, claimed against the Bailey campaign. Corrigan's lawyer uh, has, will not say, will not talk about the nature of those allegations, um, especially since he's, you know, Corrigan was a minor when all of this came to light. He just turned 18 um, in late October. Uh, so there's a lot of sensitivity there, um, according to the lawyer. Um, the lawyer is Scott Casper. He actually ran in the GOP primary uh, for the sixth congressional district this past in the this past primary um, unsuccessfully, um, um, and he's a longtime attorney. Um, and then you have Dan Proft, who obviously has been a big cheerleader of Darren Bailey's campaign with uh, commercials uh, that that he's put out with as part of his PAC that's funded by Uline. Now, what happened was, is that Proft on October 23rd reached out to Casper. Proft apparently somehow got wind of these confidential financial settlement negotiations that Casper, Corrigan, and the Bailey campaign had, trying, had, been, had been trying to resolve. Um, again, this was not in the public domain, but um, Casper hears from Proft, gets text messages from him wanting to talk about a possible uh, complaint that Proft had heard rumors about that Casper was going to file. And Casper, of course, did not engage with him, basically telling him that, you know, any communications about this must go through, um, you know, must go through counsel. Um, and, and you're a third party. So obviously, Casper was baffled as to, you know, why somebody like not, not just Dan Prof, but anyone who's not involved in these settlement negotiations would reach out to him 
to expect to get some information, reach expect to get some information about this case. So obviously it raises questions to how Dan Prof knew about the existence of these settlement negotiations when they were confidential, um, given the fact that he's been, like I said, such a big cheerleader for the Bailey campaign. Um, you know, has he been talking to the Bailey campaign about this? Um, you know, obviously Prof said in the text messages to Casper that he has no involvement in the campaign, but um, it, it, it's very clearly, again, it, it, this, this is something that very few people know about and Prof is an outsider in this, in this sense. And um, when we asked Prof about how he knew about this, he gave us um, a very, very non-responsive reply and he was very dismissive. He accused the Chicago Tribune of an 11th hour hit piece full of garbage accusations prompted by some goofball lawyer trying to make a name for himself. Uh, so he, he didn't issue a denial by any means, but he didn't answer um, any questions about um, you know, why he reached out to Casper to inquire about these uh, settlement negotiations. Um, and added to that, it's not just Casper who has talked about the existence of these negotiations on the record. Um, uh, Tom DeVore, uh, the downstate attorney who's running um, on the Republican ticket for attorney general, Corrigan now works for DeVore, and DeVore confirmed that he was aware of these negotiations, but really didn't have much more information that he can reveal beyond that. Hmm. Well, Charlie, the of course, the PACs are not allowed to really work with these campaigns, but uh, this, to say that that line doesn't get crossed, I'm guessing, is is not really accurate, right? Well, yeah, and it would appear in this case from the reporting that Rick and Jeremy did that Croft was attempting to get involved in a campaign in a way that the law says these dark money groups that uh, are set up that are supposed to be independent operations, totally divorced from any coordination with the campaigns, that seems to be a line that pretty obviously was crossed here. Now, what the repercussions might be, I don't know. My guess is, given the nature of things, probably none. And it, especially if once the campaign is over, as all indications appear, uh, Darren Bailey is not going to be our next governor. This may all just blow away. But it's interesting because it's, Dan Proft is, you have to scratch your head. Why does Dick Uline give Dan Proft so much money when Proft has not had a very good record of success in terms of what he's tried to do? Now, maybe it's all about, as people have noted, the checks cash. And as long as he can keep turning this stuff out, I, I got one of his propaganda rags, these so-called Sangamon Sun in the mail the other day. And it was just all full of what I consider to be total garbage and kind of things that uh, a reputable newspaper would never put out. And it's disguised as a newspaper, which it clearly isn't. And this is the first time I've had one of those. They've been popping up all over the, all over the state. And as Hannah mentioned, there's, there's a, like a national network of these fake news organizations that are promoting all kinds of falsehoods in an attempt to help Republican candidates defeat Democratic candidates. And 
Proft is right at the front of it here in Illinois. Let's move right into the campaigns themselves. And Jeremy, you wrote uh, this week big preview piece with Dan Petrella talking about some of the key races in the state legislature. Um, of course, Democrats hold super majorities in both the Illinois House and Senate. Uh, what's the likelihood that that could change after Election Day? I mean, it certainly appears that the Republicans have a shot of, of making some net gains um, in the General Assembly. I mean, of course, that's not that's not assured, but um, it's it definitely looks like it is a possibility. But, um, uh, you know, the races that we folk, but, but, you know, it's really going to be a, a lot of the races that we focused on for the story, though, were pretty much toss ups. I mean, because we're focusing on the collar counties of Chicago which really can go either way. You got, um, you know, two-term state rep, Ann Stava Maria Naperville. She's a um, very progressive Democrat who is in the Naperville, uh, Naperville, Wheaton area, which has become purple over the years. It's become, it's leaned more democratic over the years, but still a heavy Republican presence. Um, um, and uh, her challenger um, is Paul Leong, um, who um, is a Naperville City Council member. And, uh, you know, so obviously the, the state Democratic Party has spent more than $200,000 um, on this race um, alone, you know, obviously because uh, it's a, it is a very competitive race. And of course, um, you know, and, and of course, just like, like any of these contested races, um, um, you know, through the state, throughout the state, you have Republicans who are really hammering away at issues um, with the uh, pretrial fairness component of the Safety Act, the, the elimination of uh, no cash bail on January 1st, in hopes of bringing suburban moderates, um, you know, back into the fold um, for Republicans, where Democrats are basically banking on the backlash of the uh, um, overturning of Roe versus Wade in the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, rolling back uh, federal abortion protections. Um, Democrats are hoping to rally behind that to um, maintain seats in the suburbs. So obviously you have the Stavamuri leong race, which is gonna be um, interesting in that regard. And then you have in, um, on, the, on the Senate side, for example, you have Susie Glowiak-Hilton uh, going against uh, Dennis Rebeletti, who is a, a Republican a uh, former state rep, um, actually, and uh, ran for state senate in 2014 and lost. Um, that's you know what he has been trying to. Uh, he's been going after uh, Gloyak Hilton because um, she does not support the Safety Act, um, but uh, she also didn't vote. No, she also was really she just opted to not vote at all, which is something. Rebeletti's really trying to capitalize on because like other like he and other Republicans are just flat out opposed to anything involving the Safety Act and would and of course would like to see it go away. But I mean, you know, Gloria Hilton, you know, on, on, on crime issues is actually pretty moderate. Um, you know, for example, she was uh, she spearheaded the um, organized retail crime bill that passed through the legislature earlier this year. She also voted against one of, she was also one of a few Democrats who voted against uh, Governor Pritzker's um, appointee, like one of his appointees to the prisoner review board, which was the basis of one of the prof ads about, uh, you know, this argument that um, Democrats are 
letting everybody out of jail and being too lenient on crime. She actually sided with the Democrats on one of those appointments because of um, one of Pritzker's appointees was releasing a cop, you know, had released a cop killer, which was something that she came out against. Um, so again, these could be very close races, races because, um, you know, she's a moderate Democrat um, and, you know, Rebel Eddie, a Republican has been in the game before. And um, so that's, a, you know, that's another race. And then of course you have a, you know, a downstate race in Springfield which um, between state Senator Doris Turner, Democrat, and Sandy Hamilton, a Republican state rep combined, that race has raked in um, more than four and a half million dollars, making it one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive race, um, uh, you know, in the General Assembly elections. Um, and basically what... <laughs> The, the race, at least for Central Illinois TV viewers, has been defined about just the two. The two are just attacking each other repeatedly in ads. You have uh, Sandy Hamilton trying to connect um, Doris Turner to uh, corruption, and you know her her husband went to prison fifteen you know fifteen years ago. Um, he was a state worker and was at the center of a ghost payrolling scheme, and there. So Hamilton's campaign was trying to connect Doris Turner to that, and. Doris Turner has fought back saying those were all lies and then has accused uh, Sandy Hamilton, calling her sellout Sandy in TV ads, uh, um, you know, criticizing her for some of the stances uh, she's taken in her brief time in the legislature, um, for instance, opposing um, um, or, or actually not supporting low costs of uh, prescription um, drug medications, for example. So, yeah, so that's that's an especially messy campaign. And it's also, um, you know, if you look at the map, it, it, you know, it, it extends from Springfield to Decatur. It's a new map from the redistricting um, uh, earlier this year um, where um, where uh, Donald Trump lost that area of Illinois by four percentage points in 2020, while he barely won that part of Illinois in 2016. So it's a, it's considered a toss up. So um, th there are, you know, several other races uh, throughout the state that are like this, um, uh, um, no doubt. Well, Hannah, certainly the Democrats will likely keep their majorities. Well, whether they'll keep super majorities, we're not sure yet, as, as uh, Jeremy was talking about. What are you hearing from Democrats out there? Are they a little concerned going into Election Day? This is the first cycle under um, uh, Chris Welch as House Speaker, the second cycle under Senate President uh, Don Harmon. Um, and of course, you know, both of their uh, predecessors were prolific fundraisers, especially Mike Madigan, you know, having been Speaker of the House, head of the Democratic Party for years and years. Madigan especially had this very aggressive, uh, it, it was called the program for his House candidates. Uh, you know, they're supposed to walk about 30 hours a week, you know, in, in addition to their uh, constituent services, if they're already in office. Uh, are people worried that, you know, like, as you said, most likely Democrats will keep their majorities. You know, we can't forget that in 2021, Democrats very aggressively gerrymandered uh, the legislative maps, even more aggressively than the previous cycles, uh, you know, map making under Madigan. And of course he was the architect of, uh, you know, this kind of style of democratic gerrymandering. One of my big bugaboos of, uh, 
you know, the last few years is people who still insist on using cliches and like don't think about them critically. And one of my least favorite ones is all politics is local. And like, hey, that used to be true. And it would be in an ideal world that would still be true, but it's not. We have had this nationalization of politics that has, um, you know, frankly made political discourse everywhere. It's cheap in political discourse. We just, we, everything is um, kind of the least common denominator and we nationalize everything. And that's not good because people need to be paying attention to local issues. I think that uh, frustration for Democrats to come back to your question is like Democrats nationally, it seems they have focused on the wrong things. Of course, we saw in the summer a bump uh, for Democratic um, you know, candidates and you know, on issues like, of course, abortion access, movement uh, on you know, gun control legislation in the wake of a few mass shootings and of, you know, including, of course, the devastating uh, shooting at the Highland Park Fourth of July parade you know, concern for the future of democracy. But as the summer has faded from memory, uh, you know, inflation is stubbornly high. Gas prices have uh, bounced back higher, uh, you know, after a reprieve this summer. And Democrats have still been focused on these issues. And like Democrats have, you know, especially nationally, it seems like kind of missed their opportunities to gain traction with economic issues because that's what voters are focused on. We've seen it over and over in polls, both nationally and here in Illinois. One of the things that's interesting is that uh, a majority of the Senate is already elected in that 20 Democratic candidates, 14 Republican candidates are running without opposition. So assuming that they voted for themselves or already voted, something like a million people have already voted early, uh, they're in. And so that's the majority of the 59 member Senate. On the other hand, in the House, there's only 40 out of 118. And so you have, you have 14 Democrats who don't have opposition, 26 Republicans, two thirds of the House is gonna be contested. Now the Republicans were per particularly effective in recruiting candidates to run in Chicago. They're all gonna lose, but this is probably the most contested in terms of having multiple people on the ballot of any election in recent years. Well, Charlie, the, the thought there that Democrats have maybe miscalculated a bit or maybe haven't done a great job on certain issues with the economy and talking that, do you agree with that? I mean, there are other issues that are important to people. Abortion is certainly a very important to many people on both sides of that issue and, and, and gun control and other things like that. Have Democrats made some missteps, do you think, in this campaign? I can't talk about what's going on nationally because I, I don't follow it with the same intensity that I do Illinois. And it occurs to me that Democrats are concentrating on what probably is going to be the key issues. The fact is that an Illinois lawmaker really can't do much about inflation. An Illinois lawmaker can't do much about the cost of gasoline. That stuff is all determined, not even nationally, that's all international stuff. So that's kind of out of the ballpark for an Illinois legislator. On the other hand, determining who's gonna be putting together a state budget, who's going to be voting for improvements at DCFS or the Department of Corrections, who's gonna deal with those kinds of things. That is what 
should be on the agenda. Uh, the crime issue is legitimate because of the questions about the, the new criminal justice reform bill that's going to take effect in January. So I would say that Democrats are doing a pretty good job here in Illinois, focusing on what they think are most important to the basically the constituency that's going to determine the outcome of the of the election. And that is, as Jeremy noted, it's going to be in the collar counties around Chicago. We'll see how effective the candidates have been come Election Day, and we'll talk about that next week. Time now for our notes from the field. And, Jeremy, let's start with you. Yeah, so basically uh, 15,000 or 1,500, rather, plus um, artifacts um, for Abraham Lincoln. Um, they were part of this multi-million dollar acquisition 15 years ago um, by, the, um, uh, by the Abraham Lincoln Museum in uh, Springfield. And, um, but there's been this uh, dispute between the Lincoln, between the, you know, the Lincoln Library and a private foundation that um, arranged for these artifacts to be sold for millions of dollars, you, you know, to actually keep these artifacts and whatnot. But um, foundation is actually going to return, is going to take them back you know, away from public view. Some of the artifacts include um, Mary Todd Lincoln's bloodstained fan that she was carrying the night that her husband was assassinated at Ford's Theater. Um, you know, President Lincoln's walking sticks, um, just stuff like that. And, you know, this is basically um, kind, kind of part of, you know, feuding that's been going on between the museum and this private foundation um, for several years among questions over financial transparency and, um, you know, basically stalled negotiations over how the two entities would coexist with one another. And uh, this was obviously reported from Dave, by Dave McKinney with WBEZ. So um, basically what you have here is you have um, these precious antiques um, that, uh, you know, associated with uh, Abraham Lincoln um, will no longer be in the museum. All right, Hannah. Earlier this week was uh, former House Speaker Mike Madigan's a formal arraignment, uh, but he was uh, not on the uh, line during this uh, telephonic hearing uh, because his attorneys I guess, successfully uh, argued a few weeks back that uh, he shouldn't have to appear. Um, you know, this is interesting. Of course, I mean, telephonic hearings have also uh, changed a lot of things in the COVID era. But, you know, one of the classic kind of tropes of, uh, you know, uh, you know, corrupt politicians is them having to show up at the uh, Dirksen Federal Court building uh, downtown uh, Chicago and, you know, having to show their faces. All right. And Charlie. Well, the uh, University of Illinois Flash Index came out. The, the results show that it fell again in October to 103.7 from a 104.1 reading in September, the seventh straight month of declines. However, as Professor J. Fred Geertz at the Institute of Government and Public Affairs at the U of I points out, this is a clear slowing of the Illinois economy, but it must be remembered that the 100 level is dividing line between growth and decline. And the obvious question is whether the US and Illinois economies are heading for a recession. So far, the results are consistent with both a soft landing and a recession with the probability of recession increasing somewhat. 
the commission on government forecasting and accountability, the legislature's fiscal gurus, reported that October was another strong month for revenues in Illinois. And through the first third of our fiscal year, base receipts are up, the report says, a very impressive $1,047,000,000. So uh, as far as things go, so far so good. All right, that's all the time we have for this episode of State Week. Our panel included Hannah Meisel, Charlie Wheeler, and the Chicago Tribune's Jeremy Gorner. You can get a podcast of our show. It's at nprillinois.org through the NPR One app or iTunes. Just look for State Week. I'm Sean Crawford, and join us next time. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.